Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Cast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arsecast Extra, as always, with James from Gunnerblog. James, good morning to you. Morning, Andrew. How's it going? I think we've had better mornings. It's going fine, <laughs> but I think we've had better mornings than this one. We have, yes. It was all a dream, it feels like, this morning. Uh, you, know, you know what's weird is that... I guess it feels a bit this morning like the final nail has gone in the coffin, but we kind of were in the coffin for a couple of weeks beforehand. That's true. We'd we had we were inside that coffin, mm. but there was some. I guess there was some hope that we might somehow escape. Yeah. Uh, and alas, no. Our uncertain fate is now certain. Um, buried alive yeah buried alive mm. I, I think that's the thing it's like death in a way there are ways of dying you can have a glorious hero's death or you can be buried alive mm. <laughs> you know like if we had got to the final day we'd won all our games we'd push city to the limit and they had done it anyway i think that would feel a lot better yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Um, mowed down in a, a hail of bullets like Willem yeah. Dafoe in Platoon. We were nearly there. Operatic strings behind, you know, like there's something, <laughs> you know, there's something aspirational about that. Yeah. Whereas this just feels very, um, I, he accidentally fell off a cliff kind of thing. <laughs> there was a, a book we used to have to do in school here in Ireland called Peg. It's right. the life of a woman. I think she lived on the Blasket Islands okay. off the south. Uh, her name was Peg Sayers. And she wrote a book in Irish that every kid in Ireland had to do. Um, it was a really terrible way to learn Irish. But I remember, maybe I'm misremembering, but she had many children. Sure. Not all of them survived. That's sad. One of them died when, as far as I can remember the story goes, he was trying to do some kind of weeding or maybe lift a turnip out of the ground. Sure. This feels very island. Carry on. And in doing so, he reefed the turnip out of the earth and <laughs> fell backwards over a cliff and died. That's kind of how our season has gone. That is the way our end has ultimately come. Um, so yeah, it, it's a it's a flat feeling this morning, and mm. yeah, you know, twenty four hours ago, hilariously, I was feeling quite optimistic. 
Um, well, why not, though? Why not feel optimistic? We just had two good wins. We'd beaten Newcastle. We'd beaten Chelsea. We're playing Brighton. We knew they were going to be a difficult team. This little run of three games, as we've said before, was was always going to be key to our to our run-in. But that is the thing of football, that you can go, you know, one day feeling optimistic and looking and seeing that there could well be you know, a, a miracle. You're looking at the best case scenario. Your glass is is half full, and the next day it's it's half empty, and you're buried alive in a coffin with a turnip that you've fallen off a cliff with. You know, that's true. That, that's and I was just, I was optimistic about events at Goodison Park as well. Oh no, I, really? Yeah, I, thought, I was not at all. Really? No, 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 no. I just I, thought maybe. You know, I thought there was a a chance. But, um. I mean, look, it's possible. Anything is possible in football, but there was no way I was putting myself through that. I went to the supermarket at around two o'clock because I just didn't want to sit there and watch what I figured was going to happen, um, which was Manchester City beating Everton. And I didn't really have any great hope that Everton might do something. I was kind of looking a little further ahead from a Manchester City point of view where maybe the final week of the season was you know, Brighton, then Brentford. That was where I I was having a little bit of maybe on the assumption that we could, you know, keep it going that long. But obviously what happened yesterday uh, has basically put paid to that beyond the most extraordinary uh, collapse that anybody would ever have seen in Premier League history. And I don't think that is going to happen. No. You know how they say anything can happen in football? I'm pretty confident that won't happen in football. Uh, Man City are not going to lose all their remaining games. They are going to get the three points they need somewhere. Yes. Yes. <sighs> Much as it rankles with me, that is what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, I thought Martin Odegaard summed it up rather concisely last night when he said, it feels like there is no hope. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I saw that interview. I watched that interview on Sky. And um, yeah, when when someone says that, and the captain of your football club says it feels like there is no hope. And obviously he's talking in terms of the the title, but it also felt like a general comment <laughs> as did, well, yeah. didn't it? It was just like, there's no hope for anything anymore. The ever. death of hope. Yeah, it's, uh, it's over. Here lies hope. You know, it was actually quite a sad interview, a sort of slightly glassy-eyed Martin Odegaard um, being asked to summarized events i did feel for him mm. slightly but well, that's look, what happens he, when you're captain i guess yeah that's it you know he's there that's his job to to front up to the media afterwards and you could see at the final whistle that there was a the players looked a bit shell-shocked didn't they 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 did a, a fair amount of slumping to the ground which is yeah they did and it was reminiscent of there was also a lot of slumping after the southampton game you know mm. um and I think, you know, in the fullness of time, we may come to recognise that as the moment where things truly kind of evaded our grasp. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, this was an emphatic full stop at the end of Arsenal's title-chasing story. Um, yeah, well, look, let's get into it then, because we've already talked about the Southampton game. We've got to talk about this game uh, yesterday. And there are layers to it, I think, and there are some comments from Mikel Arteta, which we'll probably deal with in in part two, because we've got some questions about that. Mm. But sunny day, at home, 
half four kickoff. The only change to the team is is Alexander Zinchenko being out. Kieran Tierney comes in. Um, Jorginho yeah. kept his place, and it was an interesting first half. I think, and I thought what Arteta said afterwards about the way the team set up for this game was was quite interesting. In that, he said, "This is what we." This is what we did away from home when we went to the Amex, except we were much more efficient in the final third. And there is, I think, a need to be cognizant of the threat that the opposition posed to you, right? That if you press a team like Brighton high up the pitch, that's exactly what they want. So don't do that or don't do that with the frequency which we normally do. But how do you balance that with... You know, my own feeling is that perhaps we we showed them a little too much respect in that this was not away from home. This was at home. This was a game where we had a lot to play for. And I would I would have preferred us to be maybe just a little bit more front footed from the off. Um do you think do you think the way we played in the first half was entirely deliberate? Do you think that some of it was okay? Let's not let's not get get caught out, but at the same time, we didn't quite play our own game sufficiently. It's tricky, isn't it? You know, because I feel like one of the criticisms of Arteta in recent weeks is, you know, does he adapt to the opponents enough? I know there's a difference between being away at the Etihad and being at home to Brighton, but I felt like. Arsenal's strategy in the first half was pretty intelligent. Um, was it deliberate? I think absolutely. Would it have been the case had Zinchenko been fit? I don't know. Mm. Because it seemed to me that we didn't want to play out th- through the back, through the defence, because Brighton's press was very uh, intense and very organised. And we were looking to create opportunities by being more direct, going longer, winning second balls and and winning it back higher up the pitch. Um, And and I sort of thought it kind of was quite quietly effective. I know it was not a typical Arsenal game and I think that made it sort of quite uneasy viewing and not a pretty game at all. A lot of stoppages as well, um, which didn't help it as a spectacle. I think for a neutral I mean, fuck those guys for a start, but it must have been pretty uh, dull. Mm. But um, I kind of got it. And, and I, I do think that the first half did actually produce some decent opportunities. I thought Brighton looked steady. I thought they looked um, relatively controlled, but I felt like the chances really came to us. And I know that football, you know, it is a game of fine margins, but if, if one of those goes in and Arsenal get the lead in this game, I really, really believe it's a completely different complexion. Uh, but equally, I do see your point. Maybe there's a way Arsenal could have played the game they've played all season and taken it to Brighton more and been more expressive playing out from the back and pressed it a little bit higher. Um, you know, they, ultimately they didn't win. So it's fair, fair enough to say they could have tried something else. But I actually understood why they took the approach they did. They just didn't capitalise on the moments that went their way, I think, enough. Yeah, I think the idea was to try and not provoke Brighton into mistakes, but to make the most of 
potential mistakes that they might make at the back. And there were a couple of those, you know. Yeah, they did. They did. There was one where Shaka, I think, almost intercepted a pass across the box. There were a few moments like that. And I get that too. I do understand where we were, um, you know, what, what, what the idea was. I just feel like perhaps we were a little too passive, which allowed Brighton to get comfortable. And I think that comfort and confidence was evident in the second half. Um, which, of course, we'll, we'll come to. Mm. The, the absence of Zinchenko, I think, is a real talking point, though, because there have been times this season when Kieran Tierney has come in at left back and, you know, has popped up in those central areas. We've talked about it. We've talked about how, how odd it is to see this traditional left back in uh, the central midfield role, you know, with his tucked in shirt and all the rest of it. It just seems incongruous to see him in there at times. And it was very obvious that we asked him yesterday to play a much more traditional fullback role. Zinchenko's had some defensive wobbles of late. There's no two ways about that. And nobody can be blind to that fact. But when you go from a player like him, who is always looking for the ball, pretty much always available for a pass in midfield, uh, as you said to me yesterday, somebody who gives you different angles to perhaps break through that Brighton press to a player like Tierney, who's more static as a left back, it's it's going to have an impact on the team. You know, Tierney had seven touches of the ball before halftime. I think he yeah. made four passes, completed four passes. And I'm not saying this to be critical of Kieran Tierney per se. I'm just saying that there is a huge difference and drop off when you're trying to control a game, particularly a game at home, where you can respect the fact that Brighton are good. You can respect the fact that Brighton uh, press very well and are well organized. But a way around that is is the technical control and security that someone like Zinchenko gives you. So for me, despite those defensive wobbles, he was a huge miss to this team yesterday. I think so. And there has been the conversation in recent weeks of does his ability on the ball offset some of those defensive worries. I think it absolutely does and has for most of the season. I think he's been mm. transformative for this team. Um, and in his absence, I mean, yeah, Tierney had those seven touches and that that's because we clearly chose not to play that way through him. Um, you know, either Arteta didn't feel it was the right thing or didn't feel that the player was up to it. And, you know, I, I think Zinchenko... Had he been on the pitch, we might have seen a more conventional game from Arsenal because, like you say, Brighton's press was good, but he could have potentially pulled it apart with his movement, his intelligence. Does it mean they would have had one or two uh, difficult moments up against some very tricky wingers for Brighton? Probably, probably. But if it get granted us more control in the game, that's the sacrifice Arteta has been prepared to make all season long. Um, so, yeah, I think he was a huge miss. And I think that it's not just Zinchenko we're missing. I think when this team was at its very best, we had a very informed Thomas Partey next to Zinchenko, who was another player who, you know, when Aaron Ramsdale's got the ball at his feet, he can find 30 yards out with two players putting him under pressure and be confident that he'll keep it. Um, unfortunately, that isn't the Thomas Partey mm. we're currently able to call upon. So I think in that part of the pitch... Uh, we were substantially weaker than we have been for most of the season. That's true. And look, 
I think Brighton were the better team in the first half, but I don't think the gulf that we saw between the teams in the second half was there. You know, we played no, the way was, we they played. They had one moment of threat, really, as I recall, like the, a shot that was... And CISO, yeah. There was there was one where Matoma went past Ben White and crossed it to the back post. But by then, we'd had a couple of chances ourselves. You know, we'd had the... Um, we had the Trossard one, which skimmed the bar. And I think you probably have to give the defender some credit there because he just got a, a little bit in the way of, of the yeah. shot. There was an Odegaard shot that went wide. There was a Jesus shot that, that um, saved was saved at the, the near post. There was the Saka shot, you know, in the, in the uh, last couple of moments of the first half, which... You know, if that's a couple of inches inside the post, that keeper's getting nowhere near it. You know, so you're talking really fine margins, which probably would have had an impact. Well, obviously, you know, uh, it would have had an impact on how we viewed that first half. But while I think Brighton were better, I don't think we were out of it by any means. I don't think we were outplayed. But in the second half, we absolutely were. Um yeah, in the first half, I felt we sacrificed control, but really had our moments. And if we had scored, it's all ifs, buts and maybes. But, you know, it, it is a completely different game at that point in time. And the, the width of the crossbar, I mean, Leo Trossard, if he'd had his shot against Southampton two inches lower and against Brighton two inches lower, yeah, very different season. Um, but, yeah, I agree with you that in the second half, uh we really struggled. And, and even in the first half, there were signs of frustration at times from the Arsenal players. I remember about half an hour in, Martin Odegaard came from the number 10 position all the way to the edge of his own penalty box to take the ball off the goalkeeper. And it was just one of those moments where you were like, that doesn't look like a team that's sort of happy with how this is going. Um, there was a kind of... <sighs> Not desperation, but just a, a, an attempt to try and change the pattern of the play. Mm. Um, and I think it was probably a response to Brighton's man marking. Uh, you know, I think it was Levi Colwell, Deserby said after the game, was tasked with following Odegaard everywhere he went. And maybe it was just a case of trying to move him around, trying to change things. But it looked to me like a team who were, um, yeah, sort of not satisfied with the degree to which they were able to kind of uh, influence the game. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting to consider if the game plan was to not quite sit off Brighton, but to acknowledge, you know, what they're good at. How then were we supposed to um, do our own thing in this game, whether that was Odegaard dropping deeper or, or, or look, I think, I think as well from the start, there was an element of us, not being secure enough in possession when we had the ball. You know, uh, when we did get it back from Brighton, we gave it away very quickly, quite often. And that's not something we see a great deal from this team. So, mm. um, And just not, as you said, there were a couple of shaky moments for them at the back uh, on the ball, and we just didn't yeah. punish it as ruthlessly, ruthlessly as we might have done. I think it's worth saying as well, I think that um, it seemed to me there was quite a concerted effort to sort of test... Caicedo at right back, uh, especially from Gabriel Martinelli, and kind of see if he could, you know, get him on a booking. But mm. uh, well, yeah, I was going to say about Martinelli because you know we mentioned Trossard and the fact that he came on after 90 minutes. Not only mm. did we lose 
Uh, Zinchenko for this game, not only have we lost William Saliba for the last couple of months, but also, you know, we, we lost Gabriel Martinelli yesterday, who's been one of our best players this season. And I think he was very, very, very lucky not to get booked for the the shoulder on Mitoma. And I'm glad Mitoma didn't get hurt because that potentially could have been quite nasty. Yeah, that was a bad challenge. It was I, a bad I, challenge. Yeah. And not the first time we've said it about an aerial contest with Martinelli in recent weeks. So yeah. I think that's something he needs to... Yeah, uh, I, look, I don't mind. I don't mind a player putting themselves about a bit, but, you know, that, that one could have been quite serious and he was very, very lucky not to get booked. But then so too was Caicedo. I don't know that we can necessarily complain that Caicedo wasn't booked given Martinelli wasn't booked, but the reality is both of those players should have been in the book very early on. And that has an impact on on the game and the way that the game is refereed and managed and, and everything else. Yeah. I mean, do you feel like the the loss of Martinelli played a part in our first half? Because like you say, it was Caicedo at right back and you know, boy, he's a good player. He he really is. He looked mm. outstanding in that position as good as he looks in, in central midfield. So, you know, maybe that will get um Mikel Arteta and Edu even more excited about this guy than than they already are. But, you know, Trossard is a different kind of threat. Martinelli will try and run at the fullback. He'll try and go outside him. Um, whereas Trossard does like to come in more centrally and, and feed in those central areas. And, you know, I don't think he had his best game for us yesterday, it's fair to say, um, even if he did have that moment that, that hit the bar. But the the loss of Martinelli, I think, is is another aspect to certainly our first half performance that uh, that's worth considering. Yeah, and it's just a change earlier in the game than you would like as well. It disrupts the rhythm a bit. That was that was the first half. If you had some up, it was bitty. You know, it was mm. very uh, kind of staccato, and uh, yeah, there was not much flow to it. I, I would argue, really, from either side. Um, Second half, Brighton exhibited, you know, some substantially better football than than what we produced. They did. And this, I think, is what drew Mikel Arteta's ire after the game was the fact that, you know, we conceded a one of those scrappy goals that you can pull apart in all kinds of directions in terms of how we didn't defend well enough, uh, potential foul on on Kivior he went down um I think he got some studs on the back of the the boot and his boot came off and it's one of those where you know do you play on without a boot or do you try and go down and hope that you know in the era of VAR that it might get called as a foul in the build-up to the goal and it might get chalked off but um I mean my gut says (laughs) you play on like Mm -hmm. I don't want to kill him for it, but it was weird. Like, I, I don't know how bad it felt, that boot on the back of his heel. Maybe it was exceptionally painful and he had no choice. But it looked odd to me. I, I was like, that's strange yeah. that he stopped in that manner. I guess, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's one of those where only he will know if it was possible for him to continue. Yeah. Um from the other end of the pitch where I was stood, it, it was one of those goals which you sort of couldn't really make sense of in real time. It just felt like 
the, the Arsenal reacted like they felt the ball had gone out of play or the yeah. whistle had been blown. It was, it was surreal. Not, it was not great. The defending was not great. Um, and, you know, this tiny little man heads home from from close range. Um, you know, That said, I mean, if it's a foul, obviously the VAR should call it back. Yeah, but it's it's a moot point, I think, uh, you know, uh, now. The, the, the issue, I think, is how do you respond? It's not the first time that Arsenal have conceded at home. Not the first time we've gone behind at home. You know, it's not ideal. You don't want to do it, but we've done it before this season. You think about the game against Bournemouth. You think about the game against West Ham. Even the recent game against Southampton. Um, you know, we had some measure of bounce-back ability, as much as I hate that word. We were able to respond. Um, in this game, we didn't yeah. and couldn't. I didn't, I didn't like the double change. No, I say. agree. I agree. I didn't. I don't think I've ever seen Mikel Arteta take off both starting central midfielders with in, in one go. I've never seen no. him do that before, and I don't think that was the right decision. Um, what because was, so it was Jorginho and Shaka. Yeah, and it was for Partey and Reese Nelson. Yeah, and Trossard went inside. Yeah, which I, you know, I, I think you can go a bit kitchen sink later, maybe, but I don't really understand what what that was. I know people have talked about Trossard as an eight and all that kind of stuff, but even if Shaka didn't have his best game, and I don't think he did, I thought Jorginho was was pretty good in the in the first half, to be honest. I think when you take off your two starting central midfielders and only put one on and then have a kind of sticking plaster is the wrong way of, of, of saying it. But what you need to do is exert some control. Mm. And I don't think those changes were capable of giving us that. So I, I found that a really strange decision from, from Mikel Arteta. It was a bit desperate because it wasn't, I think it wasn't even the hour mark quite yet. It was maybe, just gone the hour, I think. I'll check the live blog, but I think hour, it was right. yeah. just so, about the, the hour mark. Long way to go in the game. And uh, Trossard switched into that midfield position against Southampton, but that was in very different circumstances um, when we were really chasing and they were really sitting off. This was a more... Uh, Balanced. I know it didn't necessarily feel balanced to us, but a more balanced, more precariously poised game. And it felt like we just dispensed with not only our central midfield, but also our two most experienced players, arguably, on the pitch. Yeah. Um, two of the leaders in the squad. I don't know. It just felt like it destabilised us um, further. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't think it helps when the Thomas party that we put on is the Thomas party of the last few weeks, whose form is nowhere near what it was at the yeah. start of this season. So that like the NBA stars in space jam, when the monsters steal all their powers, <laughs> yeah, a little bit like that. Yeah. That's just the analogy I was thinking of, but there was a moment, wasn't there where, where I think Danny Welbeck just brushed him off. Um, yeah. And, and Partey was complaining about a foul and it was just, sorry, Welbeck is too strong for you there. You know, you need to be, you, you need to be more competitive. And I'm, you know, again, I'm not blaming Thomas Partey. I'm just saying that when he made that change, 
we didn't get the kind of positive contribution from Partey that we were hoping from. Nevertheless, there were a couple of moments, James, where, again, where if we had taken the chances, I think Reese Nelson blasted a shot just wide, and it was one of yeah. those where he kind of hit it with his laces, whereas if he hit it with the inside of his foot and maybe curled it towards the the post, it might have had a, a chance of going in, but it only just went wide, and I think... Trossard then had a shot on target, really good pass from Martin Odegaard. It's a shot on target, but it just felt to me like a finish that lacked conviction, you know? Yeah, and and I think that the gap between those efforts was the best part of 10 minutes, really. And that was what was striking about the second half. We never were able to kind of generate pressure or momentum, really, on mm. the Brighton goal. There were these occasional flashes, as you suggest, and maybe if one of those goes in, you know, the whole atmosphere, the whole performance shifts. But Well, it does because we've seen that that of dynamic change before where we have been like, oh, God, are we in this? Oh, we've scored. Now we're it. Now we can go. And I think, you know, obviously it's, it's kind of redundant to say the goal would, a goal would have changed something, but you know, we have seen that, that happen before this season. Yeah. And it, it just never caught light, you know? Um, uh, and, and ultimately but Brighton sloppiness play- at the other end yeah. cost us. Brighton were playing well though. You know, I think that's the other part of, of this. Um, what did Arteta say afterwards? I thought it was quite interesting. He said Brighton were very good when we um, when we weren't good, something like that. Hang on a second. Yeah. Um, Brighton were really good when we became really poor. Before that, it was game on, and I think he's referring mostly to the first half in in that regard. And I think there is something to that. But you you have to give Brighton credit. They're, they're a confident team. They played very well. They they did, as they're perfectly entitled to do, disrupt the rhythm or any kind of rhythm. Well, not that we had any rhythm to disrupt, but, you know, trying to get it going and there's players going down, players getting injured, players going down again. The, the guy that came off all the way across the pitch, what's going on there? You know, I thought you had to go off the near side and make make your way all the way around, you know, stuff like that. That's on the referees, though, and that's not to make any kind of excuse. But that was something else we had to contend with. Um, no, they're very good. And they were, you know, rather generously, they uh, put Matoma on the right wing for the first half hour of the game, uh, which helped us out. Once they switched him over to the left, he was a, a nightmare, you know, constant threat. Um but there's half a dozen really good players in that team, like who will play for big clubs in this country eventually, sure. I'm sure. Um, the other change, or the other changes that Mikel Arteta made, yeah. like, I don't know if you're in a game like this where it's still only 1-0, I don't really know that taking Martin Odegaard and Gabriel Jesus off for Eddie Nketiah and Emile Smith-Rowe is anything other than an absolute hit and hope. Because, you know, even think back to that Southampton game. It was Martin Odegaard who sparked the comeback with a goal with a couple of minutes to go and then Saka got a goal and, and everything else. 
Like, I like Emil Smith-Rowe. You know, I want to see Emil Smith-Rowe do well at this football club because, you know, he's come from the academy. We all have a, a um, you know, soft spot for him. And, and he was very good for us last season, scored goals. And we want to see him succeed, right? But mm-hmm. I don't know that Emil Smith-Rowe right now gives you more goal. Well, I know for a fact that Emil Smith-Rowe right now, having not played for most of the season, who's barely got a look in in the last couple of months, is going to give you any more goal threat than Martin Odegaard. Similarly, Eddie Nketiah, you know, who's had his moments this season, he doesn't give you more than Gabriel Jesus can give you. And I don't think those two substitutions were were good. I think they were bad, actually. No. I, I, and I... I didn't necessarily know I was going to say this in these terms, but I think Arteta slightly lost his... I think he lost his head a bit yesterday. Mm. I think um, his post-match comments, I think, for me, are part of that. Uh, When I read those, I didn't have the reaction that many people have had of like, oh, good, he's setting the standards high. I was like, that doesn't sound like... That doesn't sound right to me. That doesn't sound like he's sort of in control of his emotions necessarily. And looking at these substitutions, I think it got away from him a bit because I just think there was no, like you say, it was complete throw of the dice. And I wonder if he was angry. I wonder if he was angry with Gabriel Jesus or angry with Martin Odegaard. Maybe, because yeah. If you're trying to win that game, there's no way you can convince me that you don't stand a better chance of it, you know, with those players on the pitch. That's that's exactly it. You know, 15 goals this season for Martin Odegaard, 10 goals this season for for Gabriel Jesus. And we know what an influential player he has been, even if I think yesterday, you know, was a bit of a struggle for him. I, I don't know that, you know, firing long balls at him to compete with Duncan Colwell is is the best tactic you could ever use. But if you were to ask me, who do I think could get us the goal and maybe goals that could have flipped that game, they were two of the players. Yeah. How do you, well, I always ask myself is how do you feel if you're Brighton and they're coming off? Oh yeah. You're, you're relieved, you know? Yeah. You're um, not, you're not, you're not with all due respect. You're not worried about a, and Emil Smith-Rowe, who's barely played all season, and Eddie Nketiah, who, you know, is a penalty box poacher. Um, and, you know, we couldn't get the ball into the box. In the no, first but place. I mean, with respect to Eddie Nketiah and Emil Smith-Rowe, yeah. as you say, what have they done in recent months? Uh, almost nothing. And, yeah, maybe Smith-Rowe could have had more chances, but just a complete roll of the dice. And there were other things he could have done, you know, going back to those changes on the hour mark. You know, it struck me you could just take Tierney off maybe and put Shaka in at, at left back and yeah. try and control possession more that way. Um, I, I I don't know. I, I, I'm I a massive, you know, I think I've just had an amazing season, but I think maybe the emotion and the pain of seeing the title slip away mm. um, may have got to him. I just don't see the logic in those substitutions otherwise. True. I mean, you have to imagine those changes were made in consultation with his, with his staff as well. Yeah, yeah, um, they, yeah. You have to think that they weren't there. Going, Miguel, please, don't do this. Yeah, yeah there is obviously some sort of consensus. 
I, I listen. We are lay people on the sidelines. But sure, I, don't, I didn't get it. I still don't get it this morning. No, no, no. I, I'm I'm with you. I'm with you. Um, and it's been you know one of those discussion points is substitutions, how he makes them, when he makes them, and and you know how they impact the game. I don't think that what we did yesterday helped us in any way, um, or what he did, you know, from the sidelines yesterday helped us in, in any way. Um, I mean, I am curious to explore the the comments now that you've brought them up um yeah he said, i mean there were two more goals do we need to, are we going to talk about i mean the, the second goal i mean yeah what was the 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 second goal was what in like the 85th minute 86th minute yeah um trussard just tried to flick around the corner you could say that the the rebound is slightly fortuitous from a brighton perspective but the guy just lobbed ramsdale um, then there were yeah, eight. I, saw, I, trust yeah. I mean, that's what happens when you put an attacker in central midfield because you're chasing a game. They're going to try things in central midfield and might not. Yes, and exactly. It's a risk, and sometimes it's not going to work. No, um, no, I mean, and that was such a case. Uh, third goal. This feels like they're sort of just moving through us with ease at that point. I mean, mm. we'd slightly given up the ghost. Obviously, Aaron Ramsdale should palm it further away from goal than that yeah. as well. Uh, I, I mean, I, I do think, listen, 3 nil was pretty emphatic and pretty brutal. And I think despite Brighton's superiority, personally, I still think that was a, a bit harsh 3-0. Um, I didn't think this was a 3-0 game. But... Uh, I, I mean, I think yeah. we, we were certainly worthy of the nil. Um, <laughs> and maybe like it, it did add a bit of icing on the, the Brighton cake, you know, the late goal two nil. I think you'd say, yeah, fair enough. That was, you know, we, we were outplayed. There's no two ways about it. Um, we didn't respond. We didn't react. I don't think anybody in particular had a, a, a good day, um, you know, from the manager to the players individually, collectively. And that's what he talked about afterwards. So I'll just read these uh, quotes where he, he was talking to Sky Sports afterwards. He obviously talked about jewels. They were better than us on, on jewels. Um, but he said, uh, he said, I was asked about how low do you feel? He said, you have to do a lot of things, incredible things to be second in this league. And we've done that. But if the team can show that face as well, there are things that have to be addressed. And it might, I think you're right to an extent. There is an element of I'm hurt and frustrated and emotional to those comments. There is an element of that. There's no doubt yeah. about that. But I think there's also something to it. And yeah, I, I, I don't mind him necessarily uh, saying that as much because it goes or it speaks a little bit to the kind of ruthlessness with which he has spoken before about standards and, and what you need to do and how you need to, how you need to perform and how you need to perform with consistency. But it is, that the, is true. That is true. It, it, you know, it's not entirely, no, it's not completely out of character of his central narrative, you know, but it is maybe the first time this season where, he has put a little shot across the bows of some of his players, right? What was the game we lost where he talked about how much he loved them? 
you know, we lost the game and he said, I couldn't love these players more, whatever it was, right? Yeah. And that is very different from what he came out with yesterday, <laughs> you know, that he probably still loves them, but I guess there are moments in a season where if they don't do what you expect them to do, or if, if uh, as you maybe hinted, there are, you know, um, instructions not being carried out or whatever it is that has made him frustrated with certain players, is, you know, is he right to say it? Is he, at this point of the season, is that something he should keep to himself? It's, I, it's yeah, interesting. I don't know. I, I think he's earned the right to say it because he's led this team really well. And... Uh, he may be correct, you know. Arsenal have sort of faltered in this final stage of the season and mm. maybe to be a Man City, to be the absolute elite, you, you know, you, you do require something slightly different. I, I, I suppose I just think, like, it sounds a little... Uh, I think I think the players have really demonstrated uh, a quality and a kind of mental strength for so much of the season. Mm. It's interesting because, like, yeah, the, the counterpoint is, yeah, but right at the end when it really matters. But I'm like, all the games matter, you know, and it mattered that they beat Bournemouth and they did. Or mm. it mattered that they went to Newcastle and win and they did. Um, so... I don't know. I, yeah, for me, I was just a little bit like, I, I felt like it was a bit harsh. But I know that many fans feel differently. Um, for me, I think Arteta should also, and he does say this, but he seemed like a guy who was angry with his players. But I think he will also have a lot to reflect on himself personally from the last few weeks. I think that's also something he he referenced. He did say yeah, that. He did, he, he did allude to that. He yeah. said... Um, he was asked actually on Sky, how do you find the balance between supporting the players and being disappointed and not accepting that performance? Is there anger? And he said, after that defeat at home, I think you have to make the analysis to yourself first before looking at anybody else. And that's what I have to do. The first one responsible is me. And he did say before that, I will always defend my players. But I do think there is a balance to be had between being supportive and backing your players and giving them the arm around the shoulder and the love that they need and the support and the 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 acknowledgement that what they have done for most of this season has been absolutely outstanding, right? Mm -hmm. It has. But we've fallen away, so there are many factors in play the manager, some of the players, individual form, injuries, the form of other teams, all those things come into play. But I think it's like being angry all the time, right? Eventually, that just becomes passe, right? You can't do the hairdryer treatment every single game at halftime because eventually players will just be like, this is bullshit. Mm -hmm. Similarly, maybe you can't do the I love you guys all the time either. Maybe there has to be a little bit of edge. Maybe you have to say things publicly sometimes 
which might make them go, ooh, fuck. Yeah, maybe I need to do a little better here, you know? And I'm not yeah, saying yeah. that is, it's, you know what I mean? It is. So it's yeah. that balance between carrot and stick, and it's delicate. It's been it's a delicate. lot of carrot, hasn't it? There's been a lot of, and understandably, because there's been no reason for stick. There's been a lot of carrot. Sometimes there is a bit of stick. And I think that's all that was yesterday, just a little bit of stick. Yeah. I think that, as I say, I think ang- I think he was angry. And it's just a really interesting relationship, isn't it? The players never get to say what – they never get to have a bite back of the manager. <laughs> that's just the way it is. Like, they never get to go, well, we didn't pick Rob Holding six weeks in a row. Do you know what I mean? Like, Well, I mean, they, they can, but, you know – you yeah, if, if they want to play for Arsenal ever again, they don't. But I think um, the manager has that authority ultimately to kind of make that call on what he says internally and what he says externally. Um, I think when you go external with criticism like that, you have to really pick your moments. Maybe this was the right moment. Um, we will only know from the response mm. in time. And I don't mean the response against not against Nottingham Forest. I think we'll only really know kind of next season how we dealt with this fallout. Last season, I think it was quite clear that we took some of that pain and used it as motivation. And I think it propelled us through the first half of the campaign. Mm. Um, Hopefully, it would be great if we could do that again. Well, I mean, that's what we we have to do. Yeah. That's... You know, you you learn a lot from what goes well, but I think you learn much more from what doesn't and how you need to address certain things. And it seems pretty clear that I would imagine already Mikel Arteta has some very defined ideas about what he wants from the summer in terms of recruitment, in terms of departures, in terms of how he continues to build this squad. And maybe yesterday was in perhaps an unexpected way. Um, You know, I think he would, like many people, have been confident going into this game based on the previous two results and, and all the rest of it, that, you know, this probably has cemented some of the ideas that he already has swirling around in the back of his mind. Yeah, absolutely. And and something we've always said about Arteta is he is ruthless. And I think uh, he'll show that again in the summer. Um, Not necessarily by like booting people out of the club, but by bringing in high level players who will threaten the standing of other players that we've grown to love, you know, Mm. Uh, I think he will recognise the deficiencies in the squad and do everything he can to put pressure on the owners to to fix them. Um, so, yeah, listen, maybe a little bit of anger and recrimination and burning fire could be a good thing. Yeah, he was certainly emotional on on Sky Sports afterwards. You could see that he was impacted by what had happened um, uh, and maybe his role in that as well. So, yeah, all in all, uh, a really disappointing day. Um, But like we said at the start, I don't think this was the, you know, I'd sort of made my peace with the title not happening. 
It's just that when it's absolutely copper fastened, it still stings, doesn't it? Yeah, and like we said, it's the manner of it, you know. You want a kind of noble defeat, whereas, God, 3-0 at home, it it does look Mm. bad, you know. Well, it is bad, yeah. yeah. (laughs) yeah. And it will, it's sort of such a neat narrative for Gary Neville and his cronies to be like, aha, I told you they would collapse kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the other aspect of it, you know, in this part of the world where you're having to experience that game, that defeat to a soundtrack of fucking Gary Neville uh, feels like cruel and unusual punishment, to be honest. (laughs) It is. It's horrible. Um, Gary Neville sort of being right about something is uh, always agonizing. Um, It's easy. Like, you know, we can all predict the worst. And then when it comes to pass, you go, aha. Yeah, I told exactly. you. You know. Uh, and we can all predict that Man City might win a lot of games. I mean, speaking of Everton and City's victory there, weirdly, I know it shouldn't, but like weirdly, I take some crumb of comfort from their relentless run of victories. Uh, you know, I think every scenario I had that involved Arsenal winning the league also involved City at some point not winning a football match. Well, yeah, and that doesn't happen. I mean, I I went back to look. The last time they lost was, you know, you know the way they just lose against Spurs because it's a ridiculous thing that happens in football for no good reason anybody can understand. Um, They lost to Spurs in early February. Here's their results ever since. Win, win, draw, Draw, win, 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 draw, win, 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 draw, win. And two of those draws in the last bunch of wins were in the Champions League. The the late goal for Bayern Munich, and then, of course, the game last week against Real Madrid, who I sincerely hope destroy Manchester City in the game in midweek. Like, I cannot hope for anything more than that. Really? There's no part of you that's like... Fuck Manchester City. Like, I don't... Uh, no. And to take United's treble no. singularity away from them? No. No, 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 no. I, I want this to be an itch that Guardiola can never scratch winning the Champions League with Manchester City. Like, he probably will win it this season because if they get through against Real Madrid, they will obliterate either of those Milan sides. No question. Yeah, no question. It'd be like Uh, (laughs) 5-0. But I I, I just don't want it to get to that. So please, Real Madrid, do what you do in in this competition. The the Milan teams are like a sort of testimonial Premier League 11. Some of the guys they've got out there. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy. Ed and Dzeko, Mkhitaryan, Malcolm Christie, Kevin Davis... <laughs> Ivan Campo still plays actually. He is, he's there. He's yeah. he's doing it up front uh for Milan now. It's like the old but it's like that's what it's like. One of the old Bolton teams, like Allardyce is Bolton. Colin Hendry like, at the back for Inter Milan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Janakopoulos. <laughs> Stelios. Um uh, Yeah, let's see. I mean listen, if they go through to the final, then I hope they win it all because 
uh, I would sort of savour the uniqueness of United's treble being eroded by City. If we're going to suffer at the hands of City's omnipotence, then by God, let everyone else. But am um, I am I mental? Or, you know, and I don't follow a great deal of Manchester United fans or anything like that for obvious reasons. Why would I? Uh, there are a few on my timeline, but then, you know, you know the people who are um, always in banter mode with fans from other clubs. Am I mad to think that there are a lot of Manchester United fans who would have preferred Manchester City to win the league than Arsenal? Oh, yeah. I think I saw a lot of that. Like, what, what's fucking wrong with those people? What's wrong with them? I guess there are two things that go into that. One is the historic rivalry from the 90s. Um, and the other is just that sense that we all share, which is that Man City winning something doesn't really count. I know, know, but like, you know, let's say, perish the thought that, you know, Tottenham get taken over by, I don't know, who's richer than Saudi Arabia? Is anybody richer than Saudi Arabia? I don't know, but let's say it's that kind Matthew of Matthew Flamini. Matthew Flamini. <laughs> but like, there isn't a snowball's chance in hell that I would wish for them to win a single thing, regardless of how you could write it off as irrelevant because of because of the, the way that they're funded. I just could not do that. I don't understand how any Manchester United fan could want Manchester City to win anything. I know what you mean. I, I think because City were rubbish for so long, there's just not the same intensity of rivalry. Weird. But yeah, it is a bit odd. It is a bit odd. Um, you know, when Liverpool were in the title race against City, I I genuinely sort of wanted Liverpool to do it because... I just felt like I liked I liked the story, you know. I, I sort of was like, "Great, kill the giant." Well, sort yeah, of thing. me too, and and it, it sort of gave you a glimmer of hope that you might be able to do something similar. And here we are, here yeah. we are, you know. Um, and look, you know, I get people have their own rivalries with Liverpool fans and all the rest of it. Jesus, yeah, I grew yeah. up at a time when Liverpool were winning everything; they won fucking everything, you know. So I get it, but. Look, I'm not saying it's it's hard to say that one club or one team or you know one approach is is pure in an era when billionaires, um, for all their faults, own football clubs. Right? Um, yeah. It's hard to make a case that this is this is pure and unadulterated, 100% proper football. You know, we, we we've gone well beyond that. But I think one thing is far more. <sighs> is much closer to the sporting ideal that we would like the game to have, which, you know, I, I guess it never will again. And it's probably been gone a long time, but at least you're sort of clinging on to something. Yeah. No, I, I'm with you there. Um, let's right. see. Let's see what, uh, what the Champions League brings. All right. Will we take a little break and do some questions? Yes, please. Let's. All right. Let's uh, take a small break here. We'll be back with your questions and more in part two right after this. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. 
With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at Gunnerblog and at Arsblog. Also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. I'm going to take a question from Twitter first, James. And I've seen this one doing the rounds a little bit. Andrew Walsh, who's at The Personal Raw, says, do you think the City result hit the team mentally and Everton result was our last real hope? No, I don't, actually. I, I really don't buy that. I, I, I wasn't how I felt watching the game. Um, obviously, we'll never know. But I think that... If you're in a title race with Man City, you operate on the assumption that Man City are going to win every game. Um, and if they don't ever drop points, it is nothing more than a, a bonus. Mm. Um, I don't think Arsenal started the game looking like they were disheartened or uh, lacking in belief. I just think they were sort of beaten by a team who played better football than them on the game, on the day, who out-tacticked and out-fought and out-played them. Mm. Um, maybe maybe the City result was a factor in that, but I have to be honest and say that wasn't my perception. What do you think? No, I don't, I don't buy it either. I think they would have expected Manchester City to, to beat Everton, and I don't think Manchester City beating Everton was... Cause that kind of a gut punch to elicit that kind of performance. I think it was much more about what we did and didn't do and what the opposition did on the day. Um, I, I will be honest and say when I, so about 10 games ago or something, it was around the time everyone was doing their own little predictatron type things. I sort of privately <gasps> did my own. You did one. Um, I filled one in oh and um, I, 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 I almost can't bring myself to say that my somewhat conservative estimate still saw Arsenal win the league. Um, and the points that I, the games that I earmarked for City to drop points, one was at home to Liverpool. Uh, I think one was away to uh, Brighton and one was away to Everton. Mm. And of those three, um, you know, they've won two pretty comfortably. Mm. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if they win the lot, um, which is kind of extraordinary and kind of awful. But it disheartened me a little bit for that reason. But I just, yeah, I, I don't think that's what made us lose the game yesterday. No, I don't think so. Um, Alistair Wood. Ali boy, 82. Why do you think so many people left the ground when Brighton's second goal went in yesterday? Public transport issues, fans feeling heartbroken and not being able to face full time 
or maybe the fated bond or fettered bond rather with this team is only conditional on us winning the league. I mean, I should confess, I left the ground before full time yesterday. I think anybody who buys their ticket is entitled to deal with disappointment in whatever way they see fit. Um, yeah, you know, I ca- I can't sit here and and criticize fans who have been brilliant all season long. I think yesterday was. Even if most of the people inside that stadium, you know, probably thought the the way we think or, or what we talked about at the start, that the title was was gone. There's a slim chance uh, that something might happen, right? But that final nail in the coffin was a really painful one. And the performance was poor. And, you know, if you just want to walk out and deal with it in your own way that's entirely up to you you know i i i'm not going to sit here and, and criticize fans for yeah it's an emotive issue because yeah. people feel very strongly about this and and you know the people who've got season tickets or got tickets for games are sort of fortunate to have them although they pay a pretty price for them uh, there's a lot of demand and people feel like if i was there i'd stay for the full you know 98 minutes or whatever it is yeah 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 um but people have lives, you know, you don't know what else is going on. Maybe they've got a baby they need to get back to, he said, desperately trying to insulate himself from criticism. <laughs> or uh, maybe as well, they just can't quite face it. Like, maybe it is just sad. Like, the players were sad and angry, the manager was sad and angry, and a lot of people in those stands felt that way too. And I actually don't think it's a slight on the relationship between fans and players. I think it would have been a hundred times worse for those fans to stay and boo. You know what I mean? For sure. For sure. And look, it's not the final game of the season. There is one more home game of the season. And I think... I think the team will get appreciation at that game. 100%. 100%. Because I think you need time sometimes to process the pain that football can inflict on you. You know, we, we, we've had some extraordinary moments this season. You know, I've been lucky enough to be at a few games and you've been at as many games as you've been at. And there have been some absolutely extraordinary highs. So much fun. We've all talked about it and people have heard about it and they're probably bored hearing about it. Right. But there is a counterpoint to that, that when the bad times come they're they're, they're particularly painful. Oh, and, there's a come down. Yeah, 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 there is. And and that's, I think, what we saw yesterday. And, um, you know, once that, once that pain has been dealt with and put away and compartmentalized, you know, the final home game of the season against Wolves, the reception the team will get pre, during, and after that game will be appreciative of all the high moments that the team provided this season. And I think to take one game, one very painful game, almost in isolation as an example of fan behavior, I think is wrong, you know, and I get it. I know there are people who are desperate to go and, you know, you will stay and clap to the bitter end. And that's true. But, you know, like I said, I, I'm not here to criticize that. I, I wouldn't criticize that. And, and there are people who leave anyway. We could be 4 nil up and there'd be people who leave early as well, you know. So it's just part and parcel of human nature. So, 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, let okay. me let I'm me glad ask. I got that off my chest. Okay, good. Um, let me ask you this one from the Discord, Dazzy Pepper, who says, "I have the feeling things will turn elegiac today." It's a good word, that isn't it? I love that word. Which means like an expression of sorrow. Um, so he says, "I'll be upbeat." What was the most important reason we were good this year? We went from top four also rounds to usurping Liverpool as the second best team. When we try to describe this season in a few years' time, what will we say went right? Hmm. Well, lots of things. Um There's an element, isn't there, of of the planets aligning, if that makes sense. That, like you say, yeah. a lot of things went right and we were able to capitalize on momentum, early season confidence, and we were like a bit of a locomotive that got going and, and just kind of kept going. Yes, I think that's true. I think, I, 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 and, I, and there's certainly a degree of kind of recency bias in what I'm about to say, but I honestly believe that Zinchenko's uh, arrival was enormous and gave us a capacity to control possession and games that we didn't previously possess. Um, I, I think my my big point, which would be a kind of you know a consequence of that, really, is that I think we played like a big team. We we suddenly quite dramatically went from playing like on the margins and edging things to operating, playing like a big team play, dominating games, dominating the ball, dominating uh, territory. Um, and there were lots of individual players who sort of helped us do that. You know, Zinchenko was one, Saliba was another. But I think that's what, what we altered. And I think even in the games where we've faltered, maybe with the exception of Brighton, we've still largely done that. You know, we we went to Liverpool and for half an hour played at Anfield like even Gary Neville says he's barely ever seen an away team play. We scored twice at West Ham inside the first 10 minutes. We were all over them. You know, Southampton, we dropped points, but we came back from two goals down with that relentless pressure that we've produced in the dying minutes of games time after time this season. Um, we play like a big club and a big team now. And I think it's vital that we maintain that going mm. into next season. I mean, I, I, the, the thing that I would add to that is the fact that we are a team that scores a lot of goals. Yeah, that's uh, true. And we that's, suddenly start scoring goals from all over the pitch. That's really obvious, isn't it? When you talk about the improvement, like, well, scoring lots of goals helps you get better. But, you know, there were times where we wondered, you know, how how much could Mikel Arteta squeeze out of, of these players or out of the system that he had brought in? And, you know, when you look at the table, how many have we scored? I think it's 83 goals and Manchester City have scored 92 I think and they've got this, an absolute freak up front. So. Yeah, you know, so that idea of of B 
being a much more proactive team, I think, aligns with what you're saying about playing like a big side. Yeah. But ultimately, you are dependent on end product. And we have had players this season who've delivered in a, in a big way, you know, from Odegaard, Saka, Martinelli, Jesus, only 10 goals. But I think you also have to take into account, you know, the length of time that he was out is probably... Like, that's had a big impact on his season for very obvious reasons. You know, just missing a whole chunk of it. But I think coming back from that kind of an absence as well isn't always easy. And maybe he's had his best goal-scoring run since returning from the injury as well, you know? Yeah. So I think the fact that we have we have very obviously improved as an attacking force, and for quite a bit of this season, we were a lot better defensively too. Yeah. Um, those are the things we got right. And, you know, we haven't been able to maintain the defensive stability. The absence of Saliba is a big factor in that. Um, but it also shows you that you have to be better prepared to deal with key absences, you know? No. I mean, it was something we haven't said about the Brighton game. They were missing a number of starters usually for them. Mm. Um, didn't seem to affect them too much. Uh, what about this from Jack Laguna? I thought this was interesting. Jack says, who is the Leno or Tierney of this summer? By that, I mean a player who many may claim or believe is vital to the upcoming season, but will actually be replaced by Arteta instead. <laughs> well, it's Tierney is the Tierney is. This season. <laughs> yeah. I, suppose. I suppose he means, mm. you know, Tierney was Tierney last summer, if you see what I mean. Mm. I, ooh, that's... So someone that is considered vital to our season, but Arteta will... Yeah, who's will, been like a regular starter or a first-team player. I think one of Shaka or Partey yeah. would be my guess, and I don't know which. But if I was to guess based on that question, that would be the one that I would choose because... When I think about everybody else who's been regular, I think about the ages of those players, and he was quite strident during the week, wasn't he, about um, how this team has not reached its peak yet. He said, we don't have one player who is at their peak, is what yeah. he said pre-game uh, to this one. So I think, you know, when he's talking like that, he's talking about the the sort of 22 to 25, 26-year-old players who can then move into their peak. I'm not necessarily sure he's talking about Granit Xhaka and Thomas Partey, who are, you know, 30, there thereabouts. So my guess would be one of those two. What about you? Yeah. Well, right now, I, I think Partey. Yeah. I just think the club are going to go all out for a player in that position. Uh, I think I think it will be Declan Rice. I think he'll play there at the base of the midfield. Mm. Mostly. Um, and I think, yeah, our first choice 11 next season may not have Thomas Partey in it, which, which seemed ludicrous a few months ago. But yeah. if I had to guess, I, I'd say that would be the one. Yeah. Uh, it, it will be very interesting because, you know, we, we talked about the quotes um uh, and Ryan Cameron on Twitter, is that Rycmrn says, some choice words from Arteta after the game yesterday. 
who do you think he's referring to? And do you foresee major surgery to the squad in the summer? I mean, who else do you see? We sort of answered that question, but who else do you see in the in the departure lounge? If we're talking Kieran Tierney, if we're talking one of Partey Xhaka, for example, who else do you think is almost certainly in that um, in that departure lounge right now? Well, obviously, pretty much everyone who's out on loan, I would say, mm. um, is likely to go, and I probably I might include. Flo Balogun in that as well. You know, it seems to be the way that's headed. Um, Emil Smith-Rowe, we've spoken about as one who could go. Uh, I, I think if he doesn't start one of the two remaining games this season, that's a bad sign for his Arsenal future because mm. you couldn't get more of a opportune moment to put him in, right, than two games that really ultimately aren't going to mean anything for our league position. Sure. Um, so if they if that doesn't happen, then I'd say that's a bad sign for him. Um, other than that, I don't know. You know, maybe Rob Holding, maybe Rob Holding. I think Just, almost certainly Rob Holding. Yeah, you think you think he'll definitely go, do you? I think so. And I, your young son there is obviously quite upset by the idea of that, but he's just going to have to <laughs> suck it up. He's a Rob Holding stand, that yeah. guy. <laughs> Rob Holding till he dies. Um, he loves that man. But, uh, yeah, there's got to be a decent chance of that, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think that from the, the current squad, and like you say, there are lone players, Albert Sambi Lukonga, Nuno Tavares. Um, Nicola Pepe Nicolas still Pepe. plays for Yeah. Busy summer. Busy summer for Edu. That is for sure. Yeah. Um, be busy. I think I had a question slightly related to to that but i can't find it right now uh okay well here's one from riley no red jelly donut and he says is there any reason at all not to go all in on caicedo after that masterclass he put on yesterday he was very good he was very very good indeed um I think we should sign him purely because it, I don't think he's allowed to be booked at the Emirates Stadium based on what I saw yesterday. <laughs> so uh, if that continues, then we should definitely do it. I think he is um, a really good player, a really good player. I, I slightly, I'm not sure I buy the idea that Arsenal would, would buy a him and a Declan Rice. I just... I'm not sure I see that. Um, I think it will be one or the other. Mm. And I, personally, I have a preference for Rice, but many people will prefer Caicedo, and I can see all the reasons why. I think he's, I think he's an excellent player. Rice is great if you're really hungry and you want to eat thousands of something. You know? That's true, or if your phone's broken <laughs> and you need to somehow resuscitate it. I, I mean... I was just, just to come back to the Partey thing, I feel like I didn't really explain why I think he may be the one that's more vulnerable. Okay. Um, and I think that he is an outstanding footballer. I really do. On his day, I think he is brilliant and few people can live with him. Um, and I would probably want to keep him. I'd probably want to keep him for that reason. But if you're asking me who I think might go, I just have this nagging thing about him, which is that whenever people talk about the squad, 
they always talk about sort of the experienced players being leaders or figureheads. And you hear names like Shaka or Jorginho, you hear a lot. Uh, you might even hear Rob Holding mentioned or people like Jesus or Zinchenko. I feel like you never hear that about Partey. That's so true and interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Like he's one of the more experienced players in the squad, but I feel like his role and his status within the squad is not as elevated as some of those other guys. Mm. And I think in terms of a personality... I think someone like a Rice is much more, you know, what's Mikel Arteta's word that he's obsessed with? Transmit. What do you transmit yeah. to the group? And I think what Declan Rice transmits is more than what Thomas Partey transmits and more fitting for Arteta's project. Okay. But I might be wrong. You might be wrong, but I think that's um, a good good explanation of why you've uh, chosen him? Um, what about this? A bit of fear-mongering. I love it. Jamie Murphy, are you worried about the seeming lack of progress on William Saliba's new contract? We've been hearing for months about talks, but yet to hear of any significant progress, especially worrying considering the drop-off we've seen without him. I suppose, yes. Um, he... I think is I think he is in the same bracket as Saka and Martinelli when we think about how we build this team. So the fact that there hasn't been any progress, perhaps in some ways because of the injury, I wonder if that's played a part. Um, there doesn't seem to be any concrete news about his fitness or what the solution might be for this back injury that he has got. So I'm worried a bit more about the injury than the contract right now, but I would yeah. love for us to tie him down um, because I do think he's, he's just an outstanding, an outstanding player. Um, and we had a question about him as well from Oedipus Wenger. Ooh, there's one to get your mind racing. Um, he said, agree or disagree. Saliba, not Jesus, was more transformational this season. We survived slash replaced the contribution of Jesus with Trossard and Eddie, but couldn't play our style with Saliba gone. And I think there's something to that. But I also think what we lost was perhaps the best central defensive partnership in the Premier League with Saliba and Gabriel that they were extremely complimentary. They worked very well together. They had a good relationship, uh, you know, on the pitch. And I believe they're, they have a good relationship off the pitch as well. I think that the loss of that partnership rather than the loss of just one individual is where I think we've, we've struggled. Yeah, I think that's true. I think, you know, I mentioned earlier about Zinchenko and Saliba being really transformative players for this team and, Jesus has also been, don't get me wrong. I just think Arteta built this team largely from the back, right? The, the kind of defensive blocks, with the exception of Saliba, maybe he was kind of on the outside for a while, were put in place first. And the way he plays is so focused on that. You know, tactically, it all stems from what Arsenal do at the back. Um, 
so I think it's no great surprise that when we've lost players in that part of the pitch, we've suffered enormously. I think Saliba has had a brilliant first season. I don't think it's been perfect. I think he had dips here and there, sure, particularly course, after the yeah. World Cup. But he's so young. Um, the authority and the swagger with which he played in his maiden Premier League season was extraordinary. Mm. And uh, I'm, am I worried? You know what you should do right now? Because we, we had some conversations about Saliba before and, and you expressed some doubt as to whether, you know, <laughs> he might ever come back and play for us. So what I would like you to do right now is say that there's no way he's going to sign his contract and you're absolutely fretting and biting your nails over this. And then this week, you know, there might be a, a, a triple contract announcement that gets us all um, warm inside. Yeah, maybe so. I suppose <laughs> I've just guaranteed Tom's party a new contract. But I... I I think I will worry with Saliba until this one's agreed because it's not like the others, you know? Not quite, it's, no. It's not quite like the others. The, there's more... The club, I think, have to make... have more of a case to make to him, given all the history. Um, mm. But it's worked for him. Like, being at Arsenal has worked for him. He went to the World Cup. Okay, granted, he didn't really play, but... Um, I think his reputation and stature has grown. I just have a feeling Saliba's one of those players who, even if we get him on a long-term contract, like my instinct now tells me he's not here forever. Like sure. he, he feels like someone who one day is going to want to play for Real Madrid, you know? Like he's just got that vibe and that's fine. That's fine. But please, can it be in... Five or six years. Well, yeah, exactly. Like the the move from Arsenal to Real Madrid is one that might pain us, but I think it would be less painful than William Saliba going to Real Madrid via three or four years at PSG where he just makes bank and all the rest of it. So. Yeah, or even if like, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, if he went elsewhere. I mean, we, we need to keep him. We need to keep him. Yes. We need to get that contract done. And if it means paying a bit more than we'd like in terms of salary, so be it. We'll make our money back on this boy one day. It's my, it's my gut feeling. Mm. So, yeah, we've got to keep him. He's worth it. He's what enabled us to play high up the pitch, play like a big team. Um, and defensively, when him and Gabriel together were together, for the most part, we were pretty good. Mm. I agree. Over to you. Over to me. Okay, we had a number of questions on this. Uh, this one comes from Paul Tomasu on the Discord. He said, sadly morning. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I went very Irish there all of a sudden. Jesus. Jesus. Gabriel Jesus. Gabriel Jesus. For Jesus. Anyway, he says, Jesus coming in has given us a huge upgrade in attack and changed the way we play but do you agree we need more to go to the next level? What do we need next season? And what does it mean for the likes of Enkedia and Balagoon? And I'll just preface this by saying, I do feel like there's another piece we could add to our, our forward line. We feel a bit five foot nine in the final third. Yes. Yes. Come home, Dominic Calvert-Lewin. Uh, I mean, Your time has come. He is such a good player, but you could not really take the <laughs> I, chance. I, I, I know, I, speak I know. I jest, but... Uh, 
He's had a terrible season, really. Barely okay. played. Um, Went off at halftime yesterday, I presume injured. Really? That's well, sad. I mean, why else would you go off for Neil Mope? It, it must be an injury. <laughs> right? No, I'm not, I'm not being funny. I'm being serious. Like, yeah. if you're Everton, why would you take Calvert-Lewin off and put Mope on if he was, um, if he was injured? Hey, listen, maybe maybe it's a question of money ball. Maybe his value is at an all-time low. We should uh, pounce now. Mm. I, I, do, we, do we need something different in the front line? I would really like it. I'd love it. I'd love another centre-forward option who gave us a different dynamic. Um, what do I think it means for Eddie and Balogun? I think it means one will be sold. I think it's almost certainly going to be Balogun. Uh, and if we get good money for him, that's fine. Um, who should it be? I really don't know. No, I don't know that part. But I mean, I think it should be someone. I think we need that. We need that. We need that presence. You know, um, and it's not just as like, okay, this game is not going the way we want it to. Let's stick the big man up top and then start lumping balls at him. You know, you're you want to bring in a player who is who's going to be starting games for you as well. You know, that's the reality of, of what we need to do when we're going to uh, play Champions League and play Premier League next season and the Cups. We need a player who's got the level to come in and start, whether it's him or Jesus starting certain games. You know, it it, it feels like a bit of a missing piece for me yeah. anyway. And I actually think, listen, I think Jesus has been great. And to be honest, when he's fully fit, like 100% fit, fully over his injury problems. I've seen him win those fights against mm. six foot four centre halves from goal kicks. And I believe he can do that when he's at his absolute best. Not in a conventional way, not by jumping up in the air winning flick ons, but by being a nuisance and putting his body in the way and um, being a difficult opponent. But yeah, I, I think, I actually think that I would. We've, we, I don't think we've ever seen Gabriel Jesus play on the flank in this Arsenal team. No, that's not, true. Not that I recall. And I think that would be an interesting evolution next season. Not not to see him start there regularly, but just to have that as an option. You know, we're always saying, we haven't got an alternative to Saka. Mm. And I'm like, well, we've got the guy who played right wing for the champions last season. You know? Mm -hmm. We've never used him there. And like, I don't know if it's because we're on a promise or something, <laughs> you know, you're going to come here and be a centre forward. But I think for the benefit of the squad, we sure. need to get to a place where we're making full use of Jesus's versatility um, and giving us that opportunity to truly rotate in attack. And that is something he brings with his ability to play different positions. I mean, that is... That's a very interesting idea because we, you know, we've got a question about Saka as well, and I'll I'll ask you that now. But um, you know, when you are trying to flesh out this squad, you know, the the, di the difficulty of recruiting another right winger is that when Saka's fit, Saka plays, and I think we do have to find a better balance between the amount he is playing and and everything else. But it's also one of those where you know you're. You know, Sack is going to sign a new contract any uh, any minute, and he's going to be the cornerstone around which this team is uh, one of the cornerstones of this team going forward. You know, so if you're a right winger and Arsenal are after you, you're going okay. Well, that that's nice, but 
you know, I, I want to play maybe. Um, but trying to solve that internally by bringing in somebody else in another position is, is, is an interesting concept. Um, I mean, let me ask you, uh, Block 5 Alive, uh, and we'll wrap it up quickly here. He says, uh, unpopular second opinion. He's looked fatigued since Liverpool, arguably before, and hasn't contributed much since. What do you think are the reasons Mikel Arteta continues to keep him on throughout games? I think because he's one of our best players and can make something happen out of nothing. Mm. I sometimes feel that his decline or his sort of bad patches are a little overemphasized in discussion. I think that he, I think we're sort of guilty of analyzing him based on if he scores or makes an assist, basically. And I, that, that's reasonable because he's an attacker and that's what he's there to do. But I'm not sure the variance in his level of performance is that great. I think it's more, well, did he score kind of thing. Mm. Um, that said, you know, as I've just said in my previous answer, I think we need to get to a place where he, like all the other players, can be rotated and kept fresh uh, and deployed in the games where we really, really need him to be at his best. But the best players, listen, Arteta took stick for saying it early season, but the best players in the league do play 50-odd games at times, you know. They play a lot of matches, Um and he is going to be one of those guys because he's an integral part of our team and an integral part of England. This, I mean, you know, I, I agree with you, actually. Um, I think it's obvious when he doesn't play as well as he can because we're so used to him producing on a consistent basis. In Premier League terms, this is the, the most barren run of his season so far. Yeah. Four games without a goal or an assist. You know, we had three games at the start of the season. Beyond that, it was like goals, assists, goals, assists, one game, one game, one game, one game, one game, two games, three games. Then he got the goal assist against Southampton. Now it's four games without a goal and an assist. So, you know, by his own very, very, very high standards, he hasn't contributed as much as he has earlier in no. the season. But, um, you know, I think there, there is merit to the argument that without the a viable alternative that maybe there is a bit too much of a burden on him at times. And perhaps he is just a little bit fatigued come the end of the season. It wouldn't be a surprise given how much he's played for us, how much he's played for England and, and part of getting the best out of Bakayo Saka next season might be just reducing that burden a little bit as much as Arteta talks about how, uh, how you've got to do it every three or four days, which I get, I, I know what he's doing there and how he's, trying to set the players up. But, uh, you know, I think there's a balance too. Um, yeah. And, and to be honest, there isn't an obvious alternative to him in the squad. Like, who can play on that right-hand side? Martinelli, maybe. Trossard, maybe. Smith-Rowe, maybe. But you wouldn't say it's any of their best positions. Nelson, maybe. Did Nelson. you say Nelson? You know. I feel like the gap between Saka and Nelson is... It's big, Substantial. Yeah. yeah. I agree. Plus, it changes the dynamic of of how we play because we've got a left-footed player on the right and you're replacing him with a right-footed player. It, it does change the way that, yeah. that you operate. The so. white Odegaard-Saka triangle, for mm. better or worse, has been an absolutely core path, and largely for better, of how we've played this season. Final question for today. It comes from Annabelle Rackham, who's at Annabellimore on Twitter. 
And she says, which birds do you hate the most out of seagulls, magpies, and cockerels? Mm, I think seagulls, you know, they are annoying and they will steal your food. Um, they can be aggressive. Magpies, obviously, I've got a lot of beef with, but as has become abundantly clear over the years on the podcast, there is a kind of morbid fascination for me to the magpie. Well, you're well known in the magpie community, let me tell you. Whereas the cockerel has no, as far as I can see, no redeeming features. No redeeming features whatsoever. And actually it scans perfectly with the song, doesn't it? Fuck cockerels forever. Whatever yeah. the weather, blah, blah. Yeah. So I, I tend to agree. At least magpies um, have given us plenty of entertainment down the years on, exactly. on this podcast. You know? Like all the great villains, you love to hate them. Exactly. Know? Exactly. Whereas the cockerel, you're like, stop crowing. Let me lie in, stupid bird. You're not even that fucking tender. You've got to cook you in a in a fucking casserole dish of wine to make you um, edible. Yeah. Sure, you may be able to stand on top of a football, which is quite an impressive feat of balance. But beyond that... Useless. Yeah. I, I I hate cockerels most of all. All right. Um, let's leave it there. Let's We've done it, it haven't there. we? We've done our best. No more podcasts this season. We're <laughs> ending it here. <laughs> it's the last one. It's been a hell of a ride doing the Arscast Extra for hundreds of episodes, but it had to end eventually. Between telling people not to listen and now prematurely uh, announcing... Goodbye, uh, listeners! <laughs> Goodbye, Don't cruel world. Unsubscribe. <laughs> unsubscribe today. All right. <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed the show and, you know, this era of podcasting. I, I didn't know it was coming to an end, but look, what can I do? I'm just a mere listen, bystander. Listen, we didn't know it was coming to an end against Brian. This is how these things happen. <laughs> We got to the final stages. It was precariously balanced and we've collapsed in the final minutes. Which podcaster is Mikel Arteta getting rid of this summer? Well, it, is, it appears it's James. Um, it looks like it might be me. Free transfer to God knows where. Um, okay. I don't know what to say other than thank you if you have got this far. Uh, thanks for listening as always. If you stay to the end, you're better than those bastards at the Emirates Stadium. <laughs> the cowards who walked out. We we are the only true fan. Oh, yeah, I did. Leave, you you but, did walk out as well, didn't yeah. you? Yeah. Do you want to do you want to leave the podcast before saying goodbye now, or will you will you give them one final bye bye? I think, I think I, I'll stay for bye bye. All right. We will catch you on the next one, folks. Have a good one. Bye bye. <laughs>